are you? I'm good. So how are you? All good? Yeah, yeah. Kind of looking ahead at a work day, starting with you. <laughs> That's good. Getting on the topic of mindfulness. Do you actually yeah. um do you actually uh meditate in the mornings or do you have a set time where you do it? I do in the mornings, yeah. I wake up and um I try to practice in the mornings. It's it's uh I mean there's like this formal way of practicing where you have a set time, but then there's also the capacity for informal practice where you can do it sort of anytime, anywhere. But I think you need a bit of a platform um, with formal practice to just get that under your belt. How, how did you get into the whole aspect of mindfulness? Um, my entry route was a little bit different than other people. I um, was working as a therapist initially um, in a treatment clinic for people with depression and anxiety. And um, what I found was that in people who were doing well in therapy, they were able to um, find a way to watch their experience, to become a little bit, to get a perspective where they're watching and witnessing their thoughts and feelings and not getting fully pulled into them. And, and when they were able to do that for themselves, they were able to be more uh, adaptive and the depression and things like that had less of a grip on them. And um, I received a grant to try to develop uh, a way of helping people prevent depression and felt that mindfulness training could be very helpful if there was a way of embedding it inside a kind of treatment format. And um, then I started to investigate it, and then I started to to practice it, and then I started to teach it inside a therapy context. Okay, yeah, it's it's I I have OCD, so for me that's how I got into the whole aspect of mindfulness because okay, so the, you're familiar with mindfulness? Yeah, 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 kind of. It, it do it helps me a lot because um, yeah. you know, like with OCD, you're it's like you're bombarded with thoughts constantly. So yes. it's it's, yes. it's 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 to try and. Because it's hard at first, like I've, uh, you know, I said to people, you know, that there's doing mindfulness is quite difficult because you're almost trying to turn your brain, you know, like it's hard to, you always latch on to thoughts and they kind of, kind of drag you down. So it's like, I kind of view it as like a, like clouds, you have to just kind of let them pass. So that's my kind of. But not everyone can do that. And and sometimes the real struggle is being um, convinced that, you know, you have to respond to this thought versus the possibility of seeing this thought sort of popping into your mind staying in your mind and passing through your mind yeah Uh, that's an interesting perspective but it takes work to get there yeah it's quite difficult it's it's definitely it but it helped me a lot like i i think i think i find that if i if i don't really do it in the mornings i kind of i don't really feel as good because i'm kind of it's like working out. I've built up to that kind of thing that I have yeah. to do it. I think it, it but it, it just helps yeah. because it, yeah. like with OCD, it's just kind of, you're trying to just bring yourself a bit down, you know? Yeah. And yeah. yeah so that's, I mean, that's the thing I've found too, is that people can sometimes feel as if it's a panacea when it's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people that I've worked with, they need more than just working with mindfulness. You know, sometimes antidepressants can be very helpful. 
sometimes having a routine that they know uh, of things that they find rewarding and sticking to it, that can also be very helpful. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness doesn't sort of make everything go away, but it, it makes you able to engage with ways of helping yourself that can have their own payoff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It just it's kind of has that added kind of help to you. Do you, do you think do you think that uh, within the world of I know the pharmaceuticals are always pushing antidepressants and like I've took you know them they do like they help but I don't think yeah. they're they're not a long term solution you know do you think something like mindfulness probably cop coupled with that is is probably a better way to do things than just purely on uh, medication you know I think one of the important points to get across is that depending on where you are with mm -hmm. your struggles you may need different kinds of things so if someone uh, can't get out of bed and someone is really having a lot of trouble at work or socially um, I think that in a more acute phase of depression or anxiety I think therapy and medication is going to be very helpful I think as people start to get better and feel better and want to maintain that for longer in their lives, then I think there's more of a role for mindfulness practices. I yeah. think it's really hard to start with mindfulness when you're like right at the beginning of something. Um, yeah. Although there may be ways of doing it in very bite-sized chunks or, or shifting from a sitting meditation practice to movement practices like yoga. I think that can be done pretty much at any time uh, where someone is, and then maybe shifting as people feel better to more of the formal sitting practice. Yeah, it, it's a it's quite a difficult thing, I think, at the start. I can only speak for me at the start. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people that I've told they should do mindfulness, you know, they might do it for a day or two, and they're like, oh, this doesn't work for me, because the yeah. idea of turning off their thoughts is quite difficult. It's like, yeah. and I, I always say to them, it's... it's um, it's like working out, you know, you're not going to get in shape in one, in one yeah. session. You just got to keep yeah. at it. And eventually you kind of, you kind of hit that point where you're like, oh, I'm not thinking, which is kind of bad for me because I go, oh, when I'm not thinking, then I start thinking I've got to, you know, I have to yeah. kind of get myself back down to that point. Do you, do you find people, it's hard for people to kind of stick with it uh, as opposed to just, you know, keep keeping at it or what's your... Thoughts on that? I think there's two things in what you said, Paul, that are really important. First of all, I think a lot of people have a misconception that when you practice mindfulness, you're trying to empty your mind. Yeah. And there are types of meditations that try to help you empty your mind, but mindfulness is not one of them. In fact, mindfulness is more about allowing you to witness just where your mind is going, but not get carried away by that. So not yeah. getting hijacked, not getting hijacked time and again, but having a place where you can be grounded and uh, settled as your mind moves and as your mind sort of throws up all these things for you. Um, I think that, that that's still a bit of a misconception that's out there, you know, and then people, you know, they blame themselves for, well, I had a really crappy meditation session because my mind was really busy or I was sitting there on my cushion answering emails, you know, that wasn't good. But if you're sitting there answering emails and you're watching yourself do that and you see, oh, this is where my mind is today. It's busy. It's racing. That's mindfulness. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think the... I, I, I definitely think more people are more 
anxious and depressed nowadays, but do you think that's because of the modern society we live in? I mean, I think we've been through a very rough period with, with COVID and, and with adapting to a, a dramatic change in how we, how we live or how we've had to live. Um, mm -hmm. And I also think that there are ways in which our society has opened up about people being able to talk about feeling depression, experiencing depression, experiencing anxiety. So part of it is that I think this was under the surface in people's lives. Um, you know, just like divorce was something that never happened in 1900s. And then yeah. in the 1960s and 70s, divorce was, was rampant. Um, but there were still shitty marriages. In the <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so I think, I think it, it's probably two things. I, I do think that, that there has been a, a, a reduction in the ability for people to connect personally and technology has replaced some of that. But at the same time, I think there's been a destigmatization of some people speaking about their emotional mental health experiences. And so I think, as more people speak, more people start to become identified. And um, I think so. I, I mean, I think those are these two factors that might be driving it. Yeah, for sure. When I, when I was a kid, the idea of talking about being depressed was kind of, you were slightly embarrassed by it. You know, you'd feel yeah. kind of awkward. And like, there was now, a stigma. There was a yeah, stigma. There was definitely that. There was definitely that. Now it's, it's kind of a, a, a bit more open, thankfully. Do you, yeah. how long, ago did the whole um, area of mindfulness to do with treating depression and other forms of anxiety how, how long has that really been in the consciousness that it's actually good good for you or ha that it's been built up to what it's become I think um, late 80s early 90s is when it started to surface and then I think um, later late 90s early noughts was when we had a lot of a lot more evidence to mm -hmm. suggest that it was helpful, and I think once the evidence was accumulated, it allowed it to take off inside more mainstream medical, psychiatric, psychological contexts where people were saying, "Well, you know, this isn't some flaky person that I'm going to that's telling me to meditate. There's actually some pretty good uh, research studies that suggest this can be helpful." Is it different between country to country with form with regards to mindfulness of how popular it is? Because I don't think it's massively popular in Ireland. Maybe it is. I don't know, <laughs> but it seems you to don't, be more. You don't think, or you do think? I don't. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I live in a tiny bubble. But I mean, yeah. for me, I heard about it mostly through like we'll say American media and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it yeah, seems yeah. more prevalent in America than here. Uh, I mean, I think that in 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 Britain. Mm. Um, uh, it's very popular. I think in in uh, North America it's very popular. Um, I think in Britain it's it's popular because um, they've actually had a number of government initiatives to try to um, disseminate mindfulness into sort of the school system, into um, the forensic system into the mental health system. And so people see it as um, more legitimate because the government has uh, sanctioned it in some ways. And, and the sanctioning comes from the fact that they've reviewed evidence. Um, 
I think, so that's a very systematic uh, approach. I think in the US it hasn't been um, sanctioned in the same way. I think it's been marketed in that way so that people um, feel that they're, they're drawn to it because they hear of it a lot. You know, magazines like Mindful, uh, yeah. a lot of courses and things like that. And I think some of that just flows back into, into Canada. Um, and I think in general, meditation has, has always been very um, popular and, and curious among a small subset of people. But, you know, people also who practice yoga are likely to have heard of meditation and mindfulness, and that group has really grown. Uh, but I think it's, it's pockets, you know, in different countries. And I think all of us have to recognize that whatever we know about mindfulness has been brought to us by people who practiced it originally in, in a number of other countries that we had very little contact with, you know, Thailand, Tibet, um, India, um, places like that, Cambodia, you know, the sort of Southeast, South Asian countries. Yeah. Um, and then we are, in a sense, practicing it in ways that have been influenced by how it gets expressed in a Western context. Yeah, they've they've started to in speaking of in Britain, they started to uh, offer surf lessons to people with depression. Which I surf, so it's it, like there's nothing better than kind of being sitting out in a wave and just chilling. It like it's a great feeling. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's worth what do you a try. Do you live, what, do you, what do you do if you live in Switzerland and you're landlocked? Get a really big bath. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think you can surf in. They have a lot of lakes there, but I don't think they get a lot of turbulence to generate. No, waves. no. I, I, I think it's only kind of places where we've got where we're not landlocked, so it's a bit. Yeah, it only, yeah. it only, only works in that aspect. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. I think. Sorry. Go so, ahead. I was going to ask you. Um, how does mindfulness actually affect the brain? Like what? What, do, what is it actually doing to the brain? That's actually I know you could say it's calming it, but what is it actually doing on a more bi biological level that it's doing to it? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a lot of studies of this um, in reference to depression, but also in reference to uh, powerful emotions more generally. I, I think in depression there are ways in which. Um, the the frontal front parts of the brain which are called part of the executive network our ability to plan our ability to um, evaluate to judge to reference things back to ourselves um, parts of those uh, circuits can be shut down by depression so for example people have a lot a lot of trouble concentrating reading making decisions and everything seems to be relevant to them what does this mean about me? And um, they judge themselves very harshly. Um, mindfulness helps to shift some of the uh, circuitry from those regions to parts of the brain that are involved with processing sensations okay. in the body. And those parts of the brain are not at the front and in the middle. Those parts of the brain are on the side of the head and a little bit more towards the back, not towards the front. And so there's a kind of a seesaw between 
the front being very active in shutting down the processing of sensory information. Or if you can amplify the processing of sensory information, sometimes you can naturally quiet the mind that is driven by the front part of the brain. Right. So it gives people a, a chance to step out of some of that incessant uh, judgment, evaluation, and by connecting with sensation, people are able to be a little bit more anchored in the present moment. And so then maybe they can see things in a different way that has more optionality, more choice. And then they still have to act. They still have to take, you know, ways of getting behaviorally involved, but they have a little bit less clutter in their way to make those decisions, take those actions. That's good. It's interesting. The brain is such a, it's such a strange thing because it's sometimes, I, you could say it works against us at times, which is quite odd because it is us. Like it, yeah, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I always find it quite strange because yeah. um, I once had a conversation with someone, actually a guy who was an OCD doctor, and I, I said to him, you know, like the whole thing is like no thoughts are real. And he said, well, all thoughts are real, which is quite a, you know, there's such an odd way of looking at that. And I was thinking if all thoughts are real, I'm screwed because like, <laughs> I've had some crazy ones. But yeah. it, have, yeah. have you have you ever met anyone that actually has, I hard to say get over de depression, but has actually it's quieted their depression as much as we'll say using antidepressants or anxiety medication or anything like that. Is there anyone that you've ever encountered that just, yeah, yeah, could, yeah. Really? It's not unusual. Yeah. But you know, it's more complex than that. It might've been that, that they started using antidepressants to help them initially. Mm -hmm. And they've gotten to a place where maybe they can have a little bit of a buffer between their thoughts. Okay. <clears throat> between thoughts like I'm no good, between thoughts like um, I've never done anything meaningful, between thoughts others hate me. So those thoughts can still keep coming back, but maybe the antidepressants give them a bit of a buffer and, and so they don't have this immediate claim on them. Yeah. And so mindfulness can also provide that kind of buffer or distance, but it comes from um, acquainting and befriending these kinds of thoughts instead of trying to, to banish them or um, push them away, you start to see, oh, you know, here come these thoughts again. Here come these ways of judging myself. Oh, here you are. And then maybe you start to name them. You know, like you call them, oh, here come the usual suspects, you know, my devaluing thoughts or I'm no good thoughts. So here you are. Um, and then you just watch them, but you don't identify yourself fully as being that thought. It's what uh -huh. you just said, all, all thoughts are real. They're real, but that doesn't mean that they're you. Oh, okay. And one of, the, one of the things that people take out of this mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy that we, that we do, that we've developed, when you ask them just as they're about to leave the door, see you for the last time, like, what did you get out of this course? There's two things that they say. One of them is um, thoughts are not facts, and depression is not me. Uh -huh. So there's more space for them as a person that is not fully defined by the thoughts that are going through their minds. Yeah, because that, that is... Mindfulness that's... supports that. Mindfulness supports the ability to see and experience that directly. That's cool. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of... 
It's almost like you're taking a bird's eye view of yourself and your thoughts yeah. sometimes. Isn't yeah. It? You yeah. That. yeah. Do you think that um, you should do mindfulness without like apps or like music or anything like that? Do you, because sometimes I, when I do it, I have some, <laughs> just something on YouTube or something like that and someone like doing a guided one. Do you think it's better to actually yeah. do it on your own with nothing or do you think music helps? You know, it's it's kind of individual. Okay. Um, it's kind of individual. I mean, um, I think I think the the, the best uh, support can be listening to a teacher who really knows what they're doing. There's so much variability on YouTube. Okay. You know, there's so much. Like, I mean, I've seen people like in pajamas just leading mindfulness <laughs> meditations. They don't know what they're doing. Right. And then I've seen other people who are really great meditation teachers who put their stuff up there freely. Okay. And people can follow along. And then sometimes there's just the practice itself. And sometimes there's music and sometimes there's color on the screen. Um, I mean, when I talk to people, what I suggest to them is that there are some excellent resources out there freely available and people can download them on their phones and listen to the guidance, yeah. Uh, just like an MP3 or something on their phone, plug it in, headphones or whatever, and then that's the practice. Okay. Um, but you know, that's me, right? And I, I maybe I'm a little bit of like a hard ass when it comes to that. <laughs> and other people may want, you know, some of the music or it may help them relax or let go or, you know, there's now virtual reality mindfulness where people put on like Oculus Oh. Um, headsets and they're taken through these like wonderful sort of you know rainforest Amazon um, vistas while they're practicing mindfulness. That's a whole other thing. Wow. Um, but I, you know, my what I tell people if they ask me is get some very good downloadable, uh, freely available mindfulness meditations. Put it on your phone and just uh, play around with that. Have you have you done the, one of those Oculus mindful things? No, no. <laughs> no, I think that's a bit creepy for me. <laughs> I'm kind of because you're kind of the whole virtual reality thing is it's a bit it's a bit I don't know it's a bit odd. I find it a bit odd. Maybe I'm just too old, but I find it a bit kind of I don't know. I don't know. You're kind of like you're almost living in your head, but it's not your head. It's another space. It's yeah, strange. It's strange. It's a, de it's a debate, you know. Like I think. I was interviewed about this at one point and, um, you know, there are some advantages, I guess, in terms of maybe you're getting people to investigate meditation who wouldn't ordinarily touch it. Um, yeah. and, and maybe you're amplifying the experience because they can see themselves sitting, you know, in front of the Grand Canyon and the sun is setting and there are, you know, eagles flying overhead and this is a great place for them to meditate. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, you know, the experience of meditation often is an effort to strip away what comes into the mind and to provide yourself with a, uh, an anchor in, from which to watch it. And I think what happens with some of the VR stuff is that it, it ends up adding a lot right. to the experience. It enhances the experience. And it supercharges it in terms of different sensory inputs. Um, so, yeah, it's still it's still a work a work in progress, I'd say.
Yeah. I th- I think I know we're speaking about we're going on the VR thing, but <laughs> I think the virtual reality thing it's 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 gonna be. I think it's quite dangerous in a lot of ways because if you're going off in these vast places through VR and you're going to get like a weird come down. Like if you come down, you're you're sitting in you know in an empty apartment. That's yeah. quite bleak in a weird way. Yeah. yeah, so you then it's going to like create a society where people almost are like addicted to that, which is quite a dangerous thing. So all 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 of those things I I find as fascinating as they are. There's a there's a quite odd danger danger to them with regards to I think our minds. Yeah, I mean I I do think they have it's just, you know, they rolled it out recently and and maybe you know you could say look people put on and headsets and they, they they play you know shoot shooter games or they they do other kinds of things at least here the content is directing them towards um being mindful being aware um letting go trying to relax their body state so yeah it's just you know welcome to capitalism <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that's definitely it. it's the world we live in how um time wise how how long do you think people should i'm sure it's it's different for everyone but is there a certain amount of time that you think is probably the quintessential good time to actually is it like 10 minutes or 15 minutes to do it or is is it is it just dependent on per people person to person sorry um you know i mean it, I think whatever I say has to be, you know, the caveat is this is my view. It's not, you know, the authorized view of the meditation community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. And I think that there are different ways of getting started. And I, I, I'd say, you know, part of the amount of time that you practice, I think, involves looking at the kinds of barriers you come up against when you try to practice. You know, I've heard of um, Buddhist monks who talk about um, it's okay to be a lazy meditator. <laughs> it's okay to say, I'm a, I can only practice for one minute today. I can only practice for three minutes today. You know, I've heard others who say, um, you know, it's 40 minutes a day, every day, every morning, or don't bother. Okay. Which is more of the hard, the hard line, you know, and then if you go on a retreat, that's what you do. You, 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 you sit and practice and then you walk and practice and then you sit and practice. So, you know, that's going to lose a lot of people. And then the other problem is if you just do it, you know, for once a day or five minutes, one minute, what are you getting out of it? And I think that one of the barriers that, that I've heard some people talk about is that if you decide you want to meditate, the first thing that you sometimes encounter is a kind of heaviness around people feeling, oh, this is such a big undertaking. This is such a, a vast and respectful undertaking that I have to um, endure and all of a sudden it becomes this big thing and if you miss a day you judge yourself and if you can't do it then it's like oh I'm never going to get there and so that's why they're saying it's okay to be a lazy meditator um, if you do one thing every day even if it's for a minute eventually it'll grow into a practice try doing three minutes a day but if you can do it every day it'll grow into a practice then you can do five minutes and then you can explore it so for those kinds of people, you don't want to make it into a big, heavy thing where it becomes, you're, you know, you change your name from Paul to Paul the Meditator. 
because <laughs> that's a new identity you've taken on. You know, that becomes very heavy yeah. as, as an obligation. But then at the other end, I think um, there is a way in which um, practicing for longer periods of time um, reveal different phenomena to you. If you sit for 20 minutes, if you sit for 30 minutes, you'll notice that there are things that drive you crazy. You get bored. You get a sense that you're wasting your time. Um, you start questioning why isn't more happening? But nothing's happening. Mm. And then what you then get is the opportunity to work with these emotions inside your mind with mindful awareness investigating them, befriending them, becoming curious. It's hard to get there if you're only practicing for one or two minutes. Right, right. So it just depends on the nature of the obstacles that you encounter. I think it'd be, it's better for people to get in the game if all they can do is one or two minutes or three minutes, that's fine. And then maybe eventually down the road, they can start to see what happened. Well, if I sit for 25 minutes, I just feel like all of these things are churning around in my mind. Then you get to work with that type of mind, churning mind, racing mind, uh, judging mind. So it's it's hard to say, you know, like do it for 20 minutes or, or, or don't do it. Um, that's kind of my long-winded answer. <laughs> why, why do you think you were drawn towards it? Well, that, you know, or studying funny. it almost, I should say. Yeah, it's funny because um, when you asked me the, the first question, um, in our conversation today was how did I come to it and I started by talking about um, the therapy uh, angle mm -hmm. um, but actually when I was 18 um, I practiced TM practiced Tai Chi and so there were things about the ability to um, kind of watch observe yourself observe your experience watch your experience get get a bit of a perspective on yourself I think that's always attracted me mm -hmm. um, to be aware, to be a little bit more aware of my actions. And I think mindfulness practice, meditation practice, seemed to me to be a very direct way of training up that capacity that's cool. compared to, say, other goals of meditation where you can enter into certain sort of states of mind or you can um, you know, tolerate pain or you can develop certain kinds of, uh, you know, powers or things like that <laughs> um, yeah apparently um, <laughs> so then it, it was really much more of that that mindful awareness piece that i think uh has always been a, an interest of mine and, and and the recognition that you can be very directly working on that through mindfulness meditation right there's definitely a a, a push towards i think different aspects of trying to cure our minds of illness like you know like psychedelics there's a big push with uh, magic mushrooms oh, yeah. and psilocybin and stuff yeah, like that yeah. and mindfulness yeah. and i think that's yeah. i think that's a great area to go because because it's i don't know have you ever read that book how to change your mind it's a really yes. good yeah it's a yeah. great like fascinating yeah. book like yeah. I, I i i think do you think coupled with mindfulness that might be almost I'm not going to say way the future because that sounds ridiculous, but I mean, you know, that, that it might be become, become more prevalent because I know in Switzerland they actually, you know, they microdose people for depression and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, listen, I think that there's a lot of um, interest in this area and I think there's also a lot of hype in this area. 
And I think where the hype is, is that the findings from psilocybin being used to, to treat people with treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. they all emphasize psilocybin. But what they don't talk about is the fact that in any of these studies that have looked at psilocybin, people have psychological support before, during, right. and after. Right. So it's not just tripping and all of a sudden your depression lifts. There are ways in which the psychological support components are are, are necessary and also to avoid uh, adverse uh, events. But they're not sexy enough to publicize and they won't attract investor money to make psilocybin more widely available. Um, And I think getting the psychological support piece right can really be very helpful. Mindfulness can definitely be some of that, can definitely be part of that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's going to be showcased because the headlines are always going to be about the drug. Yeah, yeah. And plus, you know, when you take magic mushrooms, how can I speak for myself? You have to be in a, you, know, you can't, you, you have to be in the right frame of mind. They're just, exactly. They're, you know, exactly. it's, it's not yeah. just as, I think there's that kind of misconception of, you take a magic mushroom and then you're cured. You're just fine, but it doesn't yeah. work like that. Well, I think the idea is that, that you, you take a psychedelic and you have an insight. Yeah. And you carry that insight back into your life and, and things change. And it, maybe that happens to the odd person, but generally those insights um, get processed with the support that people have before, during, and after. Yeah. Do, do you think um, it's ever going to get to a point that that stuff is going to get legalized? Mass, I would say. I know that there are jurisdictions in the United States where they are already available uh, for use in clinics. You know, for example, I think it's it's Seattle or in Colorado, it's on a ballot okay. for certain, like maybe it's a municipal jurisdiction or a state jurisdiction for people to set up treatment clinics um, that provide psilocybin for depression. In Canada, um, or at least in Ontario, there are clinics where you can have um, ketamine infusions. I've heard for, about that. Uh, for depression. So it's it's slow. It's usually in a clinic with a health practitioner. It's not just sort of available at your corner store. Yeah. But that is that is one of the trends. Yeah. The LSD is, is another one that people are... But it's quite dangerous because I know if you have a history of um, schizophrenia, it can actually bring out the schizophrenia in you. That's what happened to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Like he took that and he kind of yeah. schizophrenia in him and it just bought it all out and kind of... So there's there's those things that you kind of... You know, I mean, it's, it's an odd one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you, you need to look at the you know, the, the rates of people having uh, negative experiences and factor that in. Is there any um, uh, relation between doing CBT and mindfulness? Is it is there certain aspects that that are connected within those two areas? Yeah, I think there are actually. I think there are. You know, um, they look very different. Okay. You know, um, med- practicing meditation and um, doing things related to meditative practice are not similar to what people do when they're working with a CBT therapist, where there's a lot of forms that get filled out. There's a lot of structure and, and um, 
planning and evaluation and looking at outcomes and things like that. And often in meditation practice, you're, you're just you're trying to let go of outcomes and uh, just watching things as they unfold. Yeah. Uh, but there is one uh, point of contact that they have in common, which might be surprising, but when you actually dig a bit deeper, it's not that surprising. Much of the work in CBT tries to get people to see their thoughts as ideas or um, mental events mm -hmm. that pop into their mind rather than as facts and as reality. And so getting people to um, recognize automatic thinking, thoughts that just pop into the head, and then seeing what they say about you and then seeing whether that's true or not, whether there's evidence that supports that, you know. Um, your friend, you were supposed to have dinner with a friend and they, they didn't show up. And then how do you understand that? Well, maybe the first thought that pops into your head is, well, you know, they're rejecting me or they don't like me or I did something wrong, I angered them. And you've got all these thoughts traveling in your head. Um, and so they might say, how do you know which of these thoughts is true and gather some evidence to look at that or what is your experience been either in support of that thought or against that thought. So then you're recasting thinking itself mm -hmm. as something that isn't an absolute reality. It can be evaluated from different perspectives. Sometimes you may be right, sometimes you may be wrong. So yeah. it becomes relative. And then if you can change how you think about things, then you are going to change how you feel and you'll be able to bring a more adaptable kind of perspective on things that happen in your life. And in mindfulness, you practice you do that a lot simply by watching thoughts come up time and again time and again and you can then see that they have a certain kind of movement they're not fixed they come in your mind they pop into your mind as if from nowhere mm -hmm. they can stay there for a while they can tell you like you need to deal with this or you need to you know take action on this but if you can watch them they'll eventually move through your mind other thoughts may come so what you said earlier in our conversation about clouds watching them move like clouds. And so that's an important point of contact. And, and I think that it's not just CBT, but often in, in psychotherapy itself, you can have this experience of, of having thoughts about yourself and then seeing them as just kind of ideas or yeah. first impressions or automatic things that pop in. Yeah, it's like that. I, I think it's an odd one to understand that our brain, our thoughts, don't think logical like you know, they just like, so when you get a random thought it's it's not a your brain's just sending you all these thoughts and it wants one to stick so you can kind of pivot off yeah. it it's a, yeah. it's it's almost like that's that's what i i i kind of from you know just i can only speak for myself but by having ocd you know like you'll get like a million thoughts and one that sticks is what your yeah. ocd will latch onto so it's to yeah. kind of de detach from that thought and to kind of realize that it's just a thought and it's not I, I mean getting into the the idea of what is reality then it's <laughs> that's another rabbit hole but it's like yeah. observe the observing your thoughts i think that's what mindfulness just it's a that's what's great about mindfulness just that it teaches you how to kind of observe that thought and that's right inter interact with it but not get caught up in it if that makes sense yeah that's right so you can watch the flow of thinking without picking out any one single thought that you have to act on. Yeah. Is there, 
do, do you find that a lot of people is it just depression that a lot of people are using mindfulness or is it say like what well, OCD and stuff like that is that becoming more prevalent because I think it, definitely I think for for OCD I always tell people like that I know that that, that it, it really like I think it really helps I do see it with depression with anxiety with OCD um, sometimes with eating disorders oh really uh, yeah um, you know, as I said, not not just on its own as a panacea, mm-hmm. but as a way of helping to um, to regulate some of the emotions that can be driven by certain ways of thinking. And then, if you can see those ways of thinking as um, part of a flow of an experience that you can watch, sometimes we can unhook ourselves from the commands that those thoughts carry to us. Okay, I, I never thought about that with eating disorders i suppose it's just your brain telling you to eat or not eat you know on both sides of the spectrum is that is that how it works it's more about how people see themselves as being overweight or fat or um you know needing to restrict or needing to purge and all of those things where people can act impulsively and mindfulness can sometimes provide people with a little bit of uh, a little bit of space to decide if that's what they want to do or see themselves um, acting or even dealing with their emotions differently. Okay, that's super interesting. Well, I thank you so much for this conversation. I, re- yeah, I really enjoyed welcome. it and, and for your time. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, thank you. And have, have a you're lovely welcome. day. Yeah, nice to meet you, Paul. And good you luck too. With all the stuff that you're doing. Take care. Oh, thank you very much. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.